welcome. We have a very special guest today on the Self Connection podcast. Her name is Laura Dotson. And uh, my personal connection to Laura has come through Satir Global. And I think we first met uh, Laura through like one of those Zoom community calls. And when I heard you speak and, and talking about your experience doing international work, I felt, uh, I felt a real resonance and a, and a yearning to connect with you. And Laura, you're you know, one of these uh, important leaders, I think, within the Satir community. Um, and it's kind of like, uh, I think of this specific group of, of elders that I've met as like the Jedis of the Satir world or within the therapy community and that are working to have this really positive impact in the world globally in this very humble way and sharing this deep and rich wisdom. So I consider Laura to be an exemplar of this. Um, just a, a brief summary of, of some of the things that I've learned about Laura. She did her first training with Virginia Satir in 1963, uh, and she was a close uh, friend of hers, of Virginia's, and was actually by her side when she died of pancreatic cancer in 1988. Um, in addition to her extensive training with Virginia, uh, Laura is also a Jungian analyst and did her postdoctoral thesis integrating Virginia's work and Carl Jung's with her own insights. And these two major influences are, are also uh, major in influences and inspirations of mine as well. Um, I see Laura as a key leader in the sharing of Virginia's work, and I'm really excited to connect with her today. This is the first of a series of conversations that I hope to have with her. She's traveled to many parts of the world, including Russia, Lithuania, and Thailand, offering trainings and workshops, and has been doing so since 19, since the 80s. Is that right, Laura? Since the 80s? Well, the first was 1990, but with Virginia, it was 1988. 1988, okay. Yes. Uh, and so I'm really excited. I, I know I've got a lot to learn from her wisdom, and um, this uh, these series of conversations is, is hopefully one way I know we're going to meet in within a month at a conference, so I'm excited about that. And I've asked Laura if she would uh, begin by leading us in a short five-minute meditation to help ground us, to get centered, to get connected together, and also uh, with the energy of sharing uh, a positive and useful conversation for others. So, Laura, can I leave it to you now to, uh, to begin with that? Sure. Well, Virginia always began her work with meditation, and the reasoning behind that is to bring one to one's highest self and to bring one in connection with life energy and life force, which she didn't really call God, but she called it life force. And mm. so I want the meditation to help us connect to ourselves and to the energies around us. All right, so if you close your eyes, uh, and as Virginia would say, your beautiful eyes, because we all have uh, the opening to our soul through our eyes, and everyone's eyes are beautiful. So as you close your beautiful eyes, allow yourself to breathe and notice your breath. The breath that connects you to the universe and to life itself. Don't change your breath, just notice it and follow it as it goes in your body as if you were a, a leaf uh, of awareness just gently going over your breath. And I would like you to affirm that you're not alone in this world, that you can connect to the energies of the heavens and you can connect to the energies of the earth and to the energies of all life on this plane. So allow yourself to feel those connections as we explore ourselves today uh, as a, an interesting endeavor. Uh, so allow yourself to prepare for Exploring yourself with curiosity, no blame, no shame, but curiosity about who you are and what your uniqueness is. And so 
as you take another deep breath, feel the chair or whatever you're sitting on holding you up and allow yourself to give way to it for you to hold, to hold you up. And allow yourself to bring your energy to this moment as you put on the shelf anything that's been on your mind before now, promising it that you can get back to it so you can bring yourself fully to this moment. And when you're ready, would you open your eyes? Hmm. Thank you for doing that, Laura. Yes. Well, it's good to be here with you. Yes. I'll be in virtually. As we transition from the meditation to our conversation, I do need to provide a brief interlude uh, and some commentary to help us transition into the beginning of our um, conversation together, uh, myself and with Laura, uh, because Laura immediately begins into teaching about consciousness and about congruence and about life force. Um, but we had hoped to talk and learn a little bit more about her autobiographically. So uh, Laura's going to be describing something that she calls the zap experience, which is the connection of the small S self or the ego in connection to a larger sense of life force energy. And when talking about such things, I think it's important to contextualize it with uh, one's own experience, one's embodied experience, so that uh, people can relate to it more realistically and that they're not necessarily talked about, at least in the beginning, as abstractions. Because I think if it just stays at that level, um, it can be not very meaningful to, to hear about concepts and theories. So I invite Laura to share about her experiences of what she's calling zap, or what I would call a feeling of deep self-connection, or what others have described as a connection to a greater life force. Would you, Laura, would you be willing, you know, that zap kind of moment, this is something I think that's evolved probably into your consciousness. Would you be willing to share, because uh, I was hoping to hear a little bit more autobiographical things at the beginning to contextualize you and to sort of frame some of these learnings that you're, you're getting into. Can you share your own experience of coming into that awareness? Yes. Well, um, thank you. And I had forgotten any introduction about myself. And <laughs> you're just ready to teach. You're ready to share. <laughs> and yeah. I think it, it'll help to context, put, put you within a context of, right. of this, this, um, you know, this, ep, this journey that you've been on. And, uh, you know, I, I was reading this book, which you wrote a chapter in, uh, mm -hmm. which is, uh, Virginia Satir, her life and her circle of influence. And there's some autobiographical pieces about you in there. And just in reading the first few pages, there's a few things that I, I do want to quote because I think it'll segue us into uh, some of our topics for today. But um, but on that on that topic of that feeling of connection to life force, uh, maybe what I what I would call self connection, this capital S self. Uh, what's been what was your sort of early part of that? It's it seems like you were a teacher at one point and then you transitioned to social work. Can you share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, uh, my parents wanted me to have a, a marketable career when I graduated, and my interest was in uh, theater and psychology, uh, which actually later led me into psychodrama. But uh, these weren't so marketable uh, with a bachelor's degree, and so I did a degree in education and taught the fourth grade for a year. and. As a teacher in the fourth grade, I had an experience that later I found was quite like Virginia's. The children would come to school and I would notice if they looked tired or if they looked distressed. And I wondered what happened to them at home. Mm. Uh, or if they were joyful, what had happened just before they came to school. And so I began going home uh, to the children's homes and visiting their families. And this, mm. at that time in 19... 60, 1958 and 1960. Uh, that wasn't the thing to do and the principal was not happy with me doing that. Uh, but I realized in this way that I was much more interested in the child's emotional development than I was in whether they learned their multiplication tables. Uh, 
And so that led me to go to the school of social work. And I, like you, when I went to the school of social work, felt, oh my, I'm not learning here what I can use. And I don't know if I like this career or not. And then I ran across an article about Virginia Satir, family therapy, a new way of working. And uh, it was about Virginia Satir and Carl Whitaker and uh, Murray Bowen. And I was so excited. I thought, oh, I could do this. This makes sense to me. And I wrote all three of them and asked if I could study with them because there was a way to reach them that was given in the article. And only Virginia answered my letter. I oh, she was I, the only one. Yeah. And I wish I <laughs> kept, kept her letter. It was handwritten. And she said, uh, come to this workshop. And it was at the place that later became Meslin Institute. Wow. But it okay. hadn't formed then. Mike Murphy had just inherited the land, just come back from India to form it. And uh, he was trying to settle things with his brother as to which part of the land each of them would inherit. Uh, but at any rate, uh, she the letter said, please come to this workshop and you will get something for your body, mind, and soul. Mm. Well, I thought, goodness, I never heard those words used in social work or <laughs> And I think that I couldn't miss that opportunity. And so I went and I took my high heels and hose uh, to go to a conference and ended up at, at uh, Esalen at the hot springs where everyone was casually dressed and, and uh, hot baths were there where people were nude in the, in the uh, spring water in the baths. So it was quite a contrast <laughs> to what I expected it to be. I was. And where were you? Where were you coming from? Where were you living at the time? Twenty-six years old. I was living in in Denver. Okay. I just uh, finished the school of social work in Denver. Okay, so this is yeah. pretty. This is right at the beginning of your career. Right, right at the beginning of my career. Uh, just this, after I finished school and got a job, I got myself there. Okay. What was your first impression of Virginia Satir? Well, she was tall like me, mm -hmm. uh, and that was kind of reassuring. It was hard for me growing up and being tall. I was six feet tall when I was 12 years old. Oh, wow. So that was, it was difficult. And she um, was absolutely expressive of what she thought and felt and uh, very present in the moment and so easy to relate to. And, I found it exciting to relate to her. Uh, it was lovely. Uh, so she seemed free to you in her expression and her connection to her her inner life, I guess. Free, free is a good word. Yeah. Seemed free to say and comment on what she thought and felt and, mm. and uh, to listen carefully too. She listened ever so carefully to other people. Mm. Uh, so I was so excited about meeting her, and I determined then that I would study with her as much as I could. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, I was um, I had taken as my first job in social work, working at, at Fort Logan Mental Health Center, which was one of 10 experimental hospitals that the National Institute of, of Health had funded. Mm -hmm. And it funded it for the purpose of using experimental and new ways of working, no locks on the doors, uh, relational and community oriented. Mm -hmm. And so we had um, living with us uh, and teaching us for three years. Um, uh, the man who founded Therapeutic Community, whose name I'm not finding right now, Maxwell Jones okay. from Scotland, okay. he came and spent three years with us, teaching us to gather all our patients from one catchment area where we work in a community every morning and have a community meeting, mm. which is, is very much a part of Virginia's philosophy is building community. Mm. These people knew what was going on with each other. They knew the meds each other took. They understood what the meds were doing for them. And they understood what their goals were in the hospital and what they wanted to accomplish what distressed them in their lives and so they could this is a this is an adult population adult population mm. uh, maybe uh, 45 people okay. gathered every morning uh, and it was so effective and so supportive and so loving 
so the patient didn't feel alone in what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to bring all the other innovators. So I said, well, bring Virginia. <laughs> and of course they did. So oh, well. every year for the uh, nine years that I worked there, Virginia came two or three times a year. And she and I did um, a group on stage of um, adult schizophrenics and their parents. So the parents were rather old, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did that work when Virginia wasn't there, and she supervised me in it. And then when she came, we do it on stage with maybe five or 600 in the audience of people uh-huh. in the Denver community who wanted to learn to work with schizophrenics in a family therapy way, okay. or even to work in a family therapy way with anyone. Right, right. Because at that time, there was a lot of uh, national funding towards research uh, within with family therapy and with right. this, like like schizophrenia specifically, or with other um, other uh, diagnoses, other diagnoses as well. But that was a, I think that pushed a lot of the innovation around family therapy. That there was a lot of research happening at around, I guess, the sixties and seventies. The sixties and early seventies, and we we um, sent every six person home, regardless of the diagnosis, as long as they had a family, and we went home with them. And every day, we spent a whole day with them at home. We learned about their neighbors. We learned about any affiliations they had with church or community or relatives all around their larger community that could be supportive to them. And Mm -hmm. we tried to educate all this community beyond blame to see what was going on with this person and this family so that they could be supportive. Mm. And the follow-up on this was five years and then seven years. And... Uh, it's really quite true that there were much fewer readmissions to the hospital, that economically it was far more economic because we didn't have the hospitalization, Right. that the people uh, stabilized far more than people even in the hospital. Uh, so it was, mm-hmm. and, and even so, that's not being done today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I wanted to get into that in terms of what did you what did you witness or observe in what was unique about the way that Virginia worked? And sort of a, a second question that maybe you can hold because you're already getting into it is um, what how do you define systemic? Because I, I hear you describing that, those layers and layers of working with the family and with the community and with the hospital. Um, so so yes, yeah, so I guess the the broad question is what uh, resonated in when you witnessed and watched Virginia work. Um, what were what were the highlights for you and what you were learning from her? Well, this deep respect for every person is the foundation. Uh, there's no shame, no blame of anyone. And to do family therapy, one has to rise above any blame of anyone because the issues are systemic. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the one person has the symptoms, but sometimes they have the symptom for the whole family. Sometimes, like in schizophrenia, it has some biological roots, but nonetheless, uh, how it, the problem is not the problem, as Virginia would say. It's how we cope with the problem. Mm-hmm. And so the family had learned they didn't know how to cope. They tried everything they knew what to do, and that's what Virginia would say to people, we know that you've already tried everything you know to do to make Mm -hmm. things better. And we know you're here because you run out of ideas. And so we want to help you to find ways to work with this this issue that your family is having. And so Mm -hmm. that absolute faith in the people, we know you've tried everything you know to do. I think I think what's interesting about this is it it makes me think of sort of this general stance that most therapists know to take to be compassionate, right? But I think there's a there's a practical practicality to the, what you're describing in terms of actually logically understanding that blame isn't going to be useful, and that like I think like tools like family reconstruction or working with the whole family system or looking past into multiple generations was a way at getting at real, real experiential compassion, like it really felt compassion. Uh, can you describe how Virginia incorporated that that kind of 
family work and because it, I think my curiosity is around how to have that grace and right? how to have how to actually embody that and to, to really genuinely feel that um, beyond just the abstraction. You know, um, Virginia spoke of how she prepared herself to meet any client. And maybe that's a foundation answer to what you're asking. Because she would say that when I'm getting ready to meet a client, I first want to put on the shelf anything I've been thinking or doing before. I can promise it'll all get back to it, but I'm leaving it for now so I can be fully present. Mm -hmm. And then I want to connect myself to the energies of the heavens and the earth and the energies of, on this plane so that I can bring as full energy as I can to this moment. And then I, I think about this person I'm about to meet or this family I'm about to meet, and I think of them with a deep respect and even awe. Now, isn't that a big word? Whoever mm. we sat in therapy, but respect and awe. Yeah. And she would say, not for their behavior, it may be something that's very hard to deal with, mm. for their essence. We all miracles, and so I'm about to meet a miracle of creation, mm. and I feel the respect and awe for that person. And when I am in that state, I can turn and take their hand because she believed that contact is a basic way of connecting, and I can look them in the eye and say hello. Mm. So it's that attitude that she brought, and she didn't feel she had any answers for what to do, but she wanted to join the family in exploring uh, what was happening and what choices they could have for other things to happen. Mm -hmm. So she joined them in what she called being a detective. And she showed that with actually a detective hat in a humorous way, but mm -hmm. it's a hat of curiosity, being more curious than blaming. And she's teaching the family all along uh, to move beyond blame of anyone. And she would even say, you know, blame is one one way we do to try to understand what's happening. We say, oh, she did it or he did it, because we want to understand why this painful thing happened. And we, we don't, in our minds, have a broader way to look at it. Right. So I want to help you to see this beyond blame. No one here uh, tries, uh, gears their life to injuring and hurting a child. Uh, that they have. They don't plan to have a child so they can hurt them, you know? And so people are not out to uh, do that, uh, except maybe as revenge when they've been hurt so much. Mm -hmm. But that's not basic in our human nature. It's a reaction to pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Vir Virginia introduced me to these uh, beliefs about the world and about people that, that, they're fundamentally growth oriented and that like a pathological focus of reducing symptoms is only one level, but that connecting to this essence I think you're describing is so important because there's a, there's a, a life force, a direction. And I had this, you know, I was at, um, I was at a body of water recently and just watching with my son, the waves coming towards us and just witnessing that and thinking there's a, there's a movement of, of some kind of life inside of us that's like those waves. They're moving in a particular direction and that direction is towards the expression of some kind of life. And sometimes I can get caught up in some kind of negative stuck pathology like blame, whether that's outward blame or inward blame. Um, but that that life nonetheless, and I think the, the ability to make contact in that way of what you're describing, contact with the essence, in the person or in the family uh, is so important, but it's it, it's uh, it has to be experienced. And I wonder, like, how she she was able to bring that. You know, when you talked about her introducing the training as a, something for the mind, body, and soul, um, what was in her experience that she had such confidence that there there was a soul. You know, Virginia didn't speak of soul in the days when she was alive, except maybe in the last few years of her life, because uh, this country was on a kind of 
anti-God kind of kick, and mm -hmm. so she wouldn't use those words exactly. Um, but she would say that uh, we have the seed of creativity, and we have the seed of, of creative energy. And if we have what is usually called a, quote, problem, she would say it's a block in energy. And Jung would say the same thing, that we are geared toward growth, but sometimes a collection of things happen in our lives that block our energy so that we can't move on in growth. Mm -hmm. So she's looking for where that block in energy happened. And often she'll try to find that by going back in the past. So she'll say, when a person is saying like, um, oh, a schizophrenic might say, I, I, I've never been liked in this family. I've, all, I've always been different. And uh, uh, people don't trust me. They don't like me. She would say, oh, good. Thank you for telling me that. And would you uh, tell me when you first felt that in your life? Mm. And then the person goes back in their past because at that point is when the energy began to be blocked. The creative energy for solving life's issues began to be blocked when they made sense that somehow they're wrong or bad or stupid or crazy, as Virginia would say. Mm -hmm. So um, they would go back and uh, often a schizophrenic break doesn't happen until like age, late teens, early 20s. Mm -hmm. So she would be curious about what their earlier childhood was like, how they felt different what it was like to be different. Did difference get a label of bad? You know, suppose we called your difference unique, mm -hmm. she would say. And so again, trying to take blame of oneself or the other off of it. And, and shame it, too, taking the blame. Shame, yes. Mm -hmm. Shame is uh, maybe the hardest emotion in life to carry because with shame, we feel like we should disappear. We shouldn't mm -hmm. exist. And uh, so shame, yes, she is really working to take that off and to help the person see themselves as she does, like a miracle of life, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A, a ball of energy that's just blocked at this moment. So I, I want to come back to our original question, which is, I can't remember how you described it, this this kapow state or this, uh, this uh, sense of connection to that uh, life force within you, what was your earlier experience of that for yourself? Um. You know, I had a lot of upbringing in, in religion uh, in the Southern Baptist Church in Texas. And uh, I felt, and my parents weren't like fanatic to the rules of the church. And they seemed that my mother particularly seemed to have something very precious, but it was, robed in all this framework of, of uh, the church organization. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to find the essence of what it was that she seemed to have. And um, so I, I looked, I was searching. Um, and I, I too had the feeling I'm different. I was uh, less than 100 pounds and six feet tall and I felt shame at having two long legs. I used to imagine that I could cut a portion of my upper leg off and put it back together so I'd be shorter. Uh, somehow I wanted to be more acceptable. Uh, Virginia had a great sense of humor. She would say, I tell you how you deal with that. You know, when you say goodnight to your boyfriend, you because I was like 25 when I met her, 26, mm -hmm. you, you go to, you come to the door and you step down on the flower bed. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll be shorter than him. <laughs> she, she just treated it with humor. It yeah. was so, so precious. So yeah. precious. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that was my experience and, and shame. And also my, my siblings were, very oriented to, um, well, one is a pharmacist and the other is a, a big time um, uh, accountant for Exxon, uh, uh, comptroller for uh, Exxon. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. at the highest level. And so they both have exacting minds. And I have a very different approach to life. I'm looking at emotional well-being, and that's just not their way of thinking. Mm-hmm. It's the way they're wired. And so I was often a threat to my family when I would speak about emotions, uh, or uh, I would ask about emotions. Uh, at, what my, a- at what age were you starting to do that? Very young, very young. Very, very young, maybe four or five, I first remember that. Yeah. And you know, uh, I, like all uh, children, tend to take any issue that's happening in the family as uh, something that they caused. And so I noticed tension and unhappiness in my family when I was around six or seven. Six, I would say, and five, five actually, five until about nine. There was this tension in our family, and I thought it was because of me somehow that I had done something wrong, or maybe I wasn't lovable anymore. My father didn't come home from work and pick me up and throw me in the air like he used to before, and I, I didn't know what had happened. That maybe somehow. I wasn't lovable. I was a charming young child, and then I was all legs, as they would say. So it must be my fault. Well, I worked with Virginia. Actually, it might have been that first time at Esalen, uh, or maybe the second time, when Fritz Perls was there, and he played my father. I was sitting on his lap. He's nothing like my father. And uh, uh, we were exploring this fact of what I've just been telling you. And afterwards, Virginia said to me, you know, Laura, something more happened to you when you were five, something more than the fact that you started to get long legs. And so you need to go find out. And she was exactly right, because she realized that long legs could not make all the pain I had, Mm. and that something more was going on. So um, I was in Freudian analysis at the time I was going out to Virginia all the time and working. I would come back and try to integrate things on the couch. Right. Uh, and I spent one Christmas when maybe I was about 28 uh, or 27, just after Virginia had told me this, keeping my mother up all um, almost all night on Christmas Eve, saying, what happened? What happened when I was five? Something happened. Uh, And I don't know what it was, but it really affected my life. My mother would kind of smile and say, well, honey, and she would kind of change the subject. And she wouldn't tell me. And this went on and on for um, uh, several hours. It was past midnight. And finally she said, well, I'll tell you, if you promise not to tell anyone else, not tell your siblings or anyone. And she told me that when I was five, she learned that my father was having an affair. Mm. Well, uh, and she was crushed by this. My grandmother, my dad's mother, was living with us. My dad's mother said to my mother, don't worry, you know, my husband did that too. You know, and my mother said, no, I won't tolerate this. And so mm. she had taken my brother and I to her mother and said, Uh, I'll come home when we have a house separate from your family all living in it, and when you're ready to be with me. uh, (laughs) I really admire her for that. And actually, my dad got a house for us separate from the one that he was renting from his family, where he had the agreement that anyone could come there to live. And so my uncles came home from the war, and they came there to live, and my grandmother lived there, and we were crowded into small space and so that all changed Uh, and my father well the war ended you know my father was one of the few people who was in the states during the war because he had a a injury from pole vaulting as a teenager in high school Mm. he couldn't go to the service for which he felt very embarrassed 
but here's this tall, handsome man, one of few around, and so it's not surprising that a lot of women would be Right. Right. Uh, so when the war ended, that affair ended, maybe not just because the war ended, uh, my mother became pregnant with my third, uh, the third one of us, uh, who was 10 years younger than me. Mm-hmm. So why was I telling you all that? So can I, can I ask about this? Uh, what, so what did you integrate or, or what, what did you expand in your awareness uh, after learning about this? Well, you know, when my mother told me that, I began to cry. And what came out of my mouth is, oh, you mean it wasn't my fault? Mm. Because I had incorporated this, somehow I had caused the family pain. Right. right. And so it was a great relief to me. Mm. What I had learned, and, and this is relevant to what we're trying to do with in our uh, talk today and for the next three talks, uh, I had learned shame as a reaction to anything being wrong. And what happened to me is I expanded my possibilities for how to react to something wrong mm-hmm. beyond what a little child would do, thinking it must be me. And I realized, my, so many other things could be going on far beyond me. I'm not the center of the universe, as a child thinks. And so it was an Hmm. old learning that I had uh, that uh, was a way to protect myself in a way. It's just to pull back and feel I won't talk, I won't uh, interact because I'm not okay. And uh, suddenly I realized there's so many other ways to look at things. So it was immensely freeing. So it it seems like the survival, and I don't know what your coping stance was at that point as a five-year-old, but it seemed like you went into this freeze mode where I I have to stay small. I have to not act. I have to not maybe be seen. And then this idea of of your body growing and becoming unavoidably seen Mm-hmm. I guess contradicted that. It's like I can't. How can I hide myself? Uh, you know, I'm I'm not small anymore. I, I wonder how would you describe the coping, the survival coping, uh, the way that your behavior manifested as a as a young girl. How did you? What did you decide? I didn't uh, become a woman really until after this work with Virginia. Uh, I just felt. Uh, not, not to be seen, not to be uh, uh, mm-hmm. noticed. And so my th- way of thinking of myself was uh, maybe even neutered. Uh, and uh, I couldn't move from childhood into being a woman, a sensual woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that leap came with this work with Virginia. Mm. And I, th- I think speaking of life energy, I mean, even in the Freudian sense with libido, it's like to, to not be in touch with that energy is like, well, to be to be disconnected from the ability to have intimacy with a partner or and to be disconnected from your creative energy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. So it sounds like the those those encounters with Virginia had quite a significant impact. Yes, definitely. It's hard to separate it all out because I was in Freudian analysis at that time. Mm-hmm. But the impetus, the explosion, uh, if you'd say, of feeling and insight would happen with Virginia. And the integration would come when I came back. I had someone to integrate it with. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. That's, sure. It's mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. 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 Um, and in, very simple little thing that Virginia just noted, something more happened and sent me to find out. Just, that's the kind of simplicity, you know, and beyond blame and permission to explore that mm-hmm. she could give. Mm-hmm. 
because I think, I mean, as a as a general theme, you're unraveling the shame and, and how I would describe it as like self-disconnection or disconnection from life force, the shame of I don't want to cause any more pain or if this is all my fault, I don't want to keep, you know, I don't want to do any more harm and feel even worse about myself. Some people go turn towards workaholism or I have to have to become this huge ego and have a lot of success to be able to make up for for all of this. Um, and then there's, you know, I to not be seen and for a child to be um, small and to be unseen, I think is also quite common as well. Um, but to unravel the shame, I think, is a, is a huge theme that is ever present, um, you know, and, and a lot of what the people that I work with uh, struggle with. It's, and yeah. Yes, I think so. And, you know, uh, I, I think the application of systemic work uh, beyond family systems and our internal systems that internalize shame uh, we can apply this systemic ideas to cultures. And I experienced in my work uh, in Lithuania, particularly, a whole nation of shame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I, I helped establish a Jungian Institute in, uh, in Vilnius, Lithuania. And one of the uh, weekend intense workshops I did, or three days, was was on shame mm -hmm. and I was presenting it. I felt very compelled to present this. I was presenting it in families and someone raised their hand and said, Laura, could there be a whole nation of shame? Mm -hmm. And then uh, people began to talk about the Lithuanians joining the Germans against the Jews. And the joining of the Germans was a way of protecting themselves against the Russians. They felt maybe this new intruder is going to be better than this old intruder was. Right. And they joined them in, in killing, uh, killing the Jewish people. And so there was an orchestra in the town center in Vilnius of Jewish people. And each night there would be fewer people there. Mm. And the people were climbing uh, into the Japanese embassy over the fence because the Japanese were giving visas and they were the only place that was giving visas. Right. And it was contrary to the emperor's wishes, but the local uh, embassy was giving them anyway mm. so the people could get out of there. Uh, but uh, there were many stories once it was safe to tell them people began to tell their stories about like being one man was talking about being with their with his uncle on a train when uh, his uncle got off left him there for a little while and went into the woods he could hear a shooting going on and then his uncle came back and they had taken Jews into the woods and killed them and this boy this man now who was a psychologist uh, but, you know, psychologists could only do research, eye-hand coordination such as that, because uh, it would be an enemy of the motherland to have a philosophy of counseling right. uh, under communism. Uh, so he couldn't speak about this experience. And this was like three years after the failed coup that he just wept and wept and wept and told his story and many other people in the group told their stories, but that was a whole nation of shame. Mm -hmm. and so it applies to all systems. Yeah, yeah. I think I think about, you know, this this uh, international work that you've talked to me about, and you're describing now and you've talked to me about before and the the piece of your own personal work that you talked about in dealing with shame and how the the insight or the connection to the context of what happened around you not just within you and then being able to speak about it to express it in relationship mm -hmm. in relationship to your mom in relationship to the work you were doing 
and analysis in in your relationship to Virginia freed up that energy, you know, this psychologist, the, the expression of it, and then the embodied expression, the tears, the expression of pain and, and uh, of, of all of the emotions surrounding that is what that, that healing power is. Um, and I guess one, one of the things I, I wondered if we could touch upon is some of any other highlights of what stood out to you in those early years of meeting Virginia. Um, and if you don't mind, I want to read something that you wrote uh, that that has to do with the body uh, in, in your impression, and, and maybe we can go from there. Would that be okay? Sure, go ahead. Um, Most of the years I knew Virginia, I sensed the profundity beneath her work's dynamic simplicity. Only more recently have I been able to articulate how I see her impact on holistic thought and the development of psychological theory and practice. Core elements in her work since the 1940s are only today becoming acceptable in mainstream psychotherapeutic thought. In a Chicago children's home in the 40s, for instance, she never hesitated to follow the orphan clients to the place of their pain. She and they went beyond the Oedipal period where classical Freudian thought stopped to the roots of early abandonment issues. Through breath and body work, she discovered that people store these pre-verbal experiences mainly in the body and in images. So I found that fascinating uh, because, you know, work with the body is becoming more, uh, I guess, evidence-based with things like sensory motor psychotherapy and a lot of the trauma work that's, that's coming out, Peter Levine's work and so forth. And there's more, I guess, acceptability of, of thinking about work in that way. Uh, can you describe your your experiences with that? And um, I know you had training from several people. Fritz Perls, uh, the founder of Gestalt Therapy, as well. Um, but with Virginia specifically, and your experiences with her, what what did you learn from her about that, about body, and how important it is? Oh, there's so much to say. I'm just sorting through my yeah. thoughts. Yeah. Take your time. Uh, I'm thinking of my experience and meditation when Virginia was dying and she asked me, uh, what shall I, I she, she said, I'm so afraid. And I said to her, what should we do about your fear? And she said, well, if I knew, I'd tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm going to have to know, I'm going to have to find out. And so I went into a deep meditation in the room next to hers where I was staying. And I jumped up after about 15 minutes and started to run to her room. And I did not know in my head what I was going to say to her, but I knew in my body. And then it came to me in words in my head. And I said, well, this is what we do. We, we know that this is right now and that you're going to die and she said yes in about a week or so and so I said well what we do is we think about each moment what needs to happen right now and then we do that and then the next thing what needs to happen right now and we do that it was extremely comforting to her and I had no idea in my mind what I was going to say to her when I got up but my body knew so this is a, a cellular way uh, experience that I had, and there are many more. I'm sure if I stop to think about them. Uh, what, Laura, what did you experience in your body through this meditation and as you came out of it uh, with with the, the insight that you did? Do you remember what you felt? Excitement. Mm. Excitement. Um, eagerness to get back to Virginia and share what I had learned that I was excited about. Uh, you know, I'm remembering in 1971, I organized, uh, well, I, what took place is the first month long training that Virginia had that I organized through the Evergreen Institute, which was a center that uh, three colleagues of mine and I had established in Colorado. And one uh, 
lovely woman named Jackie Swartz was there. And Jackie um, carried a lot of pain in her body and tension in her body and uh, very quickly could be in tears and not exactly know what brought her to those tears. And uh, Virginia knew that her mother had died in an accident. Well, not immediately, but after being in a hospital bed in the middle of the living room for about a month, she died. And um, Jackie was in this automobile accident. Mm-hmm. And Virginia wanted her to find her experience at that time because she felt that that was stored in her body. She was maybe only three years old. And that that was affecting her life now. As Virginia knew that trauma in childhood is stored in the body and that we make conclusions about it and behaviors based on it to protect ourselves. Because when we're so little, we haven't had much life experience and we don't know how to take care of ourselves under such extreme uh, an unusual kind of agony and uh, so she had her on the floor as Virginia did her her orphan clients where she worked in the 40s in Chicago and she said you know she was just ever so patient and following what, what I call leading by following a half a step behind. Mm. I don't know if Virginia ever used that phrase. Have you run across it in her writing? No, I, I haven't. That's, that's not I, I think it may be something that I put together by this describing how I want to work and how I saw Virginia working. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know where I'm leading. I only am following. And I listen. I'm looking very carefully for the next thing the person will say that will direct me where we're going. And I'm trying to read their body and mind, uh, their emotions, their breath, their posture, everything about them to try to help them surface what's almost conscious, but not conscious yet. And that's what I saw Virginia doing as she was working with Jackie. And so she was right down on the floor with her. And she was saying, uh, where are we right now? You know, I don't know where we are. Uh, you're lying low on the, on the floor. Yes. Would you like to lie lower on the floor? Oh, yes, I would. Because she saw her kind of wanting to go down. So she's suggesting something to her, which a Freudian wouldn't do, but Virginia feels that when she's a partner with a person in exploring, that they won't take what she's saying unless it fits. So she doesn't worry that they'll see her as an authority and Mm -hmm. have to say, oh, yes, I'll do that. But they really will check it with themselves because they've already become partners in exploring. I'm I'm trying to understand. She was already lying on the floor. How could she lie on the floor lower? Like what, what was well, she the had her, position? She had her elbows uh, propped up in front of oh, her I see. body with yeah. her elbows. So right. go ahead and rest yourself there. So she I did, see. and she started combing her fingers on the floor. And as she combed her fingers, uh, Virginia noticed her fingers and said, "If your fingers had a voice, what would they say?" What are they seeing? What are they feeling? Just giving her a lot of possibilities. What are they seeing? What are they feeling? What would they say? So that that Jackie could take that in. And she said, it's a rough floor. It's a rough floor. It's brick. And then she began to remember that this accident happened in the center of town on a brick road. And she was lying on that brick road she had been thrown out of the car. And so she, she then finally found where she was. Mm. Oh, I, I did all this with my sweet daughter who I adopted at two and a half. And she had to find all her early memories. She had to find them, especially her abandonment when she was brought to the orphanage. 
And it was painful, but she had to find them. And she was in therapy, and I was supporting her work in therapy and uh, going to these places with her. Uh, and she, like, like Jackie, found where she was and the relief that comes when you can place in time and space the feeling tone that you had. So there's a context to what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. It's very comforting. And she could explore it and see, oh yes, of course, of course I was in agony. Of course this is where I was. Mm -hmm. My daughter used to say to me, mother, I want my own memories. And then she remembered, mother, did you put some lotion on my cheeks sometime? And yes, I did, they were very chapped. And that was one of her first memories. And she was so excited that she remembered and she could remember the touch of my hand on her cheek. Mm. It was so comforting to have a, a memory to, to become familiar with that part of her life that she had repressed. Mm. I'm curious with, you know, in, in doing that work, obviously setting the context is very important. So it's safe enough to, for those memories to, to surface. And I, I have this, as you're describing it with Virginia stroking Jackie's hand or touching her hand, mm -hmm. but there was a soothing, there was a, a comforting, a presence that she felt in that, but maybe also that she sensed something about her hands that was important to resurfacing this memory. Um, I wonder what else you saw or witnessed in the way that she nurtured the context or uh, directed the context such that important memories or healing or moving through experience could happen. Um, There's no way in which she interrupted Jackie's process. She wouldn't have Jackie look at her because that would interrupt her process. She's looking at the floor. She wouldn't ask her something that she wanted her to answer directly to her. She'd ask her something in a way that she would explore it in herself and in her body as she was on the floor. Mm -hmm. So Virginia was not in the way of what right. she was doing. Right. She was just um, a presence to help Jackie find what her body was remembering. Mm -hmm. So I think that art of staying out of the way as a therapist, mm. so important. Yeah. I think of the word guide, and I don't know if Virginia used that word. I think she had, but that mm -hmm. she's, she's a guide and um, you're in your experience, but the, having the presence of someone, a trusted someone to, to guide you in what is a universal, at least a, on some level, the universal human element of that, of moving through pain, of, of needing love and support through that pain, um, and having that communicated some way through voice tone or touch or mm. through your eyes. I think all those ways, voice, tone, touch, uh, and long before she was on the floor, Virginia, uh, Jackie had felt partnered with Virginia and felt that Virginia wanted to go with her as far as Jackie yeah. could go. Yeah. And that bonding happened before she got on the floor. Sure, yeah. These are such, I think, powerful images and I think also very inspiring to hear for me in terms of um, what, what I aspire to be in in the kind of therapy that I try to do with people and and a reminder of where what the essential ingredients are I think of that so I thank you for for sharing sure mm -hmm. it's very thrilling to think about you know that we can go on a journey to explore ourselves and have a partner who will just be there to facilitate it not be in the way of it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and not contrive or force a pacing that doesn't fit with the... I think that person. Freud tried to do that by sitting behind the person and allowing them to free associate. Mm -hmm. This is the same idea to stay out of their way while they explore their inner life. Mm. But 
and and one could have a relationship with an analyst so that they felt some trust that the person was being with them and letting them explore. But you know, the the analyst would not say much, would not convey the the caring and support. Yeah. So many wouldn't at the time I was in analysis. Anyway, uh, so that it's a blank slate. It's, uh... Yeah, that image was that ability to journey with a person like Virginia did was just not there in my analysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, with, I think what's, what's an essential ingredient to, to powerful and healing relationships and therapy is when this, when the self within me, the life force within me can contact that higher self within you and all, all the things that surround that, the, the personality development, the survival patterns, all of that can start to become fluid again when there's that kind of contact. And I think when there's, when there's an overemphasis or an orthodoxy towards method and technique, then it's easy to uh, lose that, that which I think is the essential ingredient, like to really make a human contact. Uh, but in, you know, the, at least the video that I saw of Virginia, she always worked with that connection. Like literally it would be the physical connection and holding someone's hand or touching them on the back or somewhere. So touching for quite a while in psychotherapy and even now has been very questionable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of people are concerned about being sued for sexual overtures and so forth. Uh, no one can make a connection with their eyes and not touch. But uh, Virginia was helping like husband and wife touch each other and touch each other's hands. Mm-hmm. And so for her to be in there with the physical aspect too, that body contact conveys energy and caring Mm -hmm. in a way that the voice can, the eyes can, but it's enhanced by the touch. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, I think the appreciation and the, the full embodiment of everything all the senses, all the emotions, all, you know, the images that, um, what I appreciate about Virginia and she really empowered me to take those risks, to incorporate touch and to make sure that the senses were involved Mm -hmm. and to use sculpting and to use the whole body. And it's, uh, to not have access to those things. I don't think I could have lasted in this field and nor in, had a good time of it at all but right um, it's a good time too it's, <laughs> it's exciting when you connect on deeper levels absolutely it's exciting for the therapist and and for the patient or the client you know um i was going to tell you something about uh what what did what was it you just said i'm not as good at these things as i used to be just as just about being empowered by her example of not being afraid to incorporate the whole self, the whole body, oh, every aspect of. I was you know. thinking about her description of a therapeutic session, and uh, it has, as most people would agree, a kind of curve to it—a warm up, an apex, mm. and then a kind of summary and conclusion. Uh, but um, as you move toward apex there's a great deal of risk that the therapist has to take. Otherwise, it's like having a cup of tea with somebody and touching on something, but not leaping into it. Yeah. So Virginia talked about the therapist taking a risk to say that, which is seems to be unsayable or to move in that territory that seems to be prohibited. Mm -hmm. And if you're wrong, then you'll get the message. Uh, the 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 client will uh, show you in the way they look or the way they hold their body or or sometimes just verbally clearly say you're not you're not with me. 
so you can back up and go somewhere again. So you have to be willing to take the risk and be wrong if you are. Mm -hmm. But if the risk isn't taken by the therapist, then uh, productivity can't happen. Well, I, and I think that that kind of uh, risk-taking is not just within the professional domain. I think it's to to do that as a therapist and to be an example of that, that people can take that kind of risk-taking and sharing of what's happening inside of them and that it can be a healthy, life-affirming thing to do, to say what it is that's happening inside of you without the need for certainty, um, but that you're, you're, you know, you're thinking relationally, right? And really that's, I think, the depth of a dialogue is if we can put these things out, my perceptions or my wishes or my hunches about things, then we can sort of co-evolve our understanding. And that uh, is is not just, I don't think that should just be reserved for people with the, the hat that says therapist. I think that's a, a universally human thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's how we create together. Yeah. Yeah. Junior, so to meet you, Tim. <laughs> oh, of, of course, get, I would have loved to, to meet her. Yeah, you, you get what she's about. I hope so. I hope so. I feel I feel uh, a, a deep, meaningful kind of connection to, let's say, her her spirit that um, inspires me daily, and I think to have a contact with you is. Uh, such a privilege that you express a similar um, heart and humanity that I I am inspired by. So, thank you for for joining me. And I. Th